0: Hello, this is James Stancil with the New Books Network, the African-American Studies channel. Today, I had the great pleasure of interviewing Amy Brown. She's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. She is an educational anthropologist, and she's also a faculty member in the critical writing program at the University of Pennsylvania. I was talking with her today about her book. It's called A Good Investment, Philanthropy and the Marketing of Race in an urban public school she did an ethnography at a school in new york a school she calls college prep she didn't reveal the name and she wrote about her experiences there and how finances and money can sometimes influence what takes place in the classroom with students now education is a a big issue in our country right now we just got a new secretary of education a new president and there's a lot of debate going on about charter schools school vouchers public school funding i think if you're interested in any of those topics even if you're not, if you're interested in, you know, public policy and what's going on in the world today and education of children, you're really going to like this interview. So buckle up, take a listen and have some fun on the African-American studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, James Stansel. Hello, this is James Stansel and welcome to the African-American studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm here with Amy Brown. She's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, UPenn, as it's called, that awesome Ivy League school. And we're going to be talking with her today about her book, A Good Investment, Philanthropy and the Marketing of Race in an Urban Public School. And it's published by the University of Minnesota Press. Amy, can you hear me? How are you today?
1: Yes, I'm doing fine, James. Thank you.
0: Oh, great. Thank you. It's great, great to hear from you. And I just want our audiences to know as a Oh washed up school teacher, I was really excited about interviewing you <laughs> on this on this subject today. It's something that's very relevant. We have a new uh secretary of education that has a you know a, a background in- in charter schools and school vouchers and you know that's something that may be new for a lot of, of of our listeners a lot of of people out there but for those of us in education it's it's something that we've have dealt with and have studied and you know, have had discussions about for many years. And so uh, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. A good investment, philanthropy and the marketing of race in an urban public school. So, Amy, how did you get involved with this subject? Can you tell us a little bit about your background?
1: Sure. Um, Well, I guess I should say, so I'm originally from State College, Pennsylvania, which is uh, central Pennsylvania, right where Penn State University is. Yeah. And I would say, you know, my own schooling background is very different than, uh, the place in which, you know, what I experienced as a teacher, sure, um, sure, at sure. The school that I call college. So I went to, you know, a predominantly white high school. I would say most of the differences between kids you could see in terms of social class. Um, okay. you know, but, uh, but yeah, when I, when I finally started teaching in Brooklyn a couple of years before mm-hmm. I did the research for a good investment, um, I was faced with, um, Just something very different than what I was used to as a student. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, for college, I I didn't go to Penn State. I went to the University of San Francisco, and I think probably the first time that I really started um, thinking about race or started to sort of form a critical race perspective was um, this class called Social and Economic History of the United States, and it was taught by uh, Professor James Lance Taylor, and I think that was the first time a professor or a teacher had ever explicitly talked about race in the classroom, and I was really compelled by that, okay. um, you know, from, from my days at USF, I um I took a few years sort of away and, and, and from, from education in general, but I eventually ended up in New York City. Um, and I became a, a New York City teaching fellow. So oh, okay. I was, yeah, I was teaching English uh, in New York City public schools. And what the, t- the, the teaching fellows program is an alternative certification program. Mm-hmm. So I was doing a master's at Pace uh, University mm-hmm. through that program. Um, while I was at Pace, I also had some pretty significant mentors. Um, so one of them was Nadine Bryce and, mm-hmm. you know, again, there's a discussion, explicit discussion in our class about race, um, about language, about power. Um, and so through what, what we were reading in her class mm-hmm. and, and through sort of what I, what I was experiencing in the classroom, um, as a white woman, a white female teacher, um, in front of a class made up of all black and brown students, mm-hmm. um, as I decided, I started thinking about the way that I was teaching language, right, and, and whose discourse was privileged. Um, and I was thinking about ways that race and power kind of intertwine in the classroom, mm-hmm. um, and ways to pick up like a critical white teacher identity. That was when I decided to pursue a PhD, uh, at the University of Texas at Austin, uh, a PhD in anthropology, because mm-hmm. I found that anthropologists were, yeah, anthropology. So people were, anthropologists were the ones that were really interrogating, um, that sort of race power, um, tension in, 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 classrooms, especially educational anthropologists. Mm-hmm. Um, so there I was mentored by, uh, by Doug Foley, um, who is another educational anthropologist. He's written a lot about, uh, the intersection of capitalism and white supremacy mm-hmm. in the United States. Um, and then was also mentored by people who are in, um, anthropology education and black studies at UT. So, uh, Ted Guard- Ted Gordon, Joao Costa Vargas, uh, Kevin Foster, Katherine Brown, um, mm-hmm and UT was great because a lot of the faculty there concentrate on activist research. So Mm. they are very aware that all teaching is political, you know, whether you acknowledge that or not, Um, they're forward about their politics, you know, whether it's in the streets, in the classroom, in their writing, um, they're doing work uh, against the violence that's, that's wrought by white supremacy, um, you know, all in all of these places. So, so having mentors like that was really crucial for me. And I, I knew, you know, after having taught, in New York city for three years, then going to UT, Mm -hmm. I wanted to design a project that would take me back into the class.
0: Got it.
1: Then I got a job at the school that I call college prep. And, and this ethnography was actually my dissertation. Okay. Um, now it's obviously been revised. since It was dissertation form, but, um, I did, you know, for my field work, I did two years of, of teacher research at College Prep. So I was teaching there. Uh, the first year I was there full time. The second year just part time, and then and then doing ethnographic research for um, for this project. So now I'm lucky enough to be able to teach undergraduates at Penn about some of the work that I've done and, and have some critical conversations with them um, about some of my findings. So now I'm teaching a class um, called "The Business of Doing Good." Um, <laughs> that sounds awesome. Hey guys. Um and, and it's great because yeah, we we read my book, but um my students are constantly pushing me to continue to ask myself critical questions and to and to sort of learn and you know, it's it's great to to have some other perspectives on the work that I'm doing.
0: Right. So the business of doing good.
1: Yeah, yeah. Right. It's my seminar, yeah.
0: So if any of Dr. Brown's students are listening, she just gave you a shout out here on this podcast. Was that very <laughs> nice? Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, and I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, in case I didn't, you know, we did mention that you're at the University of Pennsylvania. And Dr. Amy Brown is an educational anthropologist, and she's a faculty member in the critical writing program at the University of Pennsylvania. And the book we're talking about her with her today is A Good Investment, Philanthropy and the Marketing of Race in an Urban Public School. We're here on the African-American Studies channel, the New Books Network. And her book is published by the University of Minnesota Press. And right, that's great. You were in Texas, so you weren't too far from me here for at least no, a, well, a little no, while. No.
1: Yep, yep. Yep. Right. I had a few years there in Austin. So those were those were good years.
0: Oh you know, yeah, yeah. Texas. I'm I'm an East Coast person myself and you know I've definitely enjoyed Texas uh um since I, I've been here. So yeah, thank you for telling us a little bit about your background, Amy. You know, it's it's good for the listeners to know you know, uh, kind of where people come from and what their perspectives are. And for for people who are listening, who are educators, they you know they should know that you are not someone from the outside. You actually taught. You were in the classroom yourself. right? Yep,
1: five years, yeah. Yeah, and so I mean, I'm uh, in the classroom today, technically teaching
0: undergraduates. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. yeah. But yeah. the K
0: the K twelve classroom, right?
1: That's right. Yeah. That's right.
0: Uh, yeah, you, you everyone's a teacher to an extent. You know, no matter what you're doing, if you're helping someone else, then you're you're a teacher. But yeah, from the from the K twelve level, they consider that the classroom. But yeah, the classroom yeah, can be exactly. uh, absolutely can can be anywhere. Um, so yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about your book. You mentioned that uh, you you taught at this school. You know where you did the ethnography, which I guess well, first let's explain what an ethnography is for people who may not be familiar with that research method.
1: Yeah, so an ethnography um, typically ethnographies are written by anthropologists or sociologists and. What they are is um, really sort of like a written portrait of a culture or community. And they they don't even always have to be written. Sometimes they can be visual. Sometimes they can be performance. um, But it's really trying to give... Um, readers or you know folks who watch it if it's visual or something like that a sense of what it's like um, to be an insider um, in in a given culture or community so that's what I was trying to really do at college prep I, I was very purposeful about the fact that I wanted to, to be an insider right mm. I wanted to be a teacher at the school um, and and so I really wanted to give readers um, a, a, a good sense of what it was to, what it was like to experience day-to-day life right, um, right. as a Community member at College Prep.
0: And, you know, if we're calling it College Prep, and for those who don't understand, you know, to, to protect the identities of those involved, the school and, and such, Dr. Brown is not going to tell you. She doesn't reveal the name of the place where she worked. And so, right. yeah, that's why it's called College Prep, because, you know, people who don't necessarily always understand how academic uh, books work. <laughs> it's like, well, where, where is this College Prep? What's, what's the name? I want to go and check it out. No, it doesn't work that way because, you know, you want to protect the identities of, of you know, of those folks unless they choose to be identified. And even then, even if they choose to be identified, it may not be the best thing for the work or the research.
1: You know,
0: keeping it anonymous, right? So yep. a, a good investment, philanthropy and the marketing of race in an urban public school. So let's just let's talk a little bit about, about the book, Amy. You know, what what are some key points or, or, or key revelations or things that you want to share with the audience about your great book?
1: Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I think first, I, I guess I'll just give a little bit of context yeah. um, to my research questions and then into college prep as a, as a school. So um, when I first set out to do this project, I I really didn't think that the book was going to be about what it ended up being about. Like mm. my questions were, were about how teachers were making um, critical pedagogy or prairie and pedagogy. We can think of it kind of like a democratic way of teaching mm-hmm. relevant to urban public schools. Right. Um, you know, how are teachers drawing on or affirming or adding to the knowledge that students are, are bringing in? Um, so when I got to the school, that wasn't exactly what I found. And so I really ended up having to, when you write an ethnography, you really have to listen to what the stories that your participants right. are telling you. Um, a good investment is not my story. It's their story. And it's, right. I wouldn't say it's even everybody's story. I definitely privileged certain perspectives over others um, because that was the story that was sort of the most powerful for me uh, to tell. Um, so, you know, I, I was teaching at college prep for, for two years, um, from 2008 to 2010. Um, and you know, it's a, it's a traditional public school. The student body is 81% black, 17% Hispanic, um, 70 to 80% of them are, are uh, or were eligible for free redu- reduced price lunch at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, teacher demographic, uh, 35 teachers there, 23 were white, um, seven were black, three identified as biracial and two identified as Latino. So, uh, mm-hmm. strong number of white teachers there, which is typical, you know, what we see in in urban public schools across the United States. Um, but wasn't, what wasn't typical about college prep, and this is what led me to sort of change my research questions was mm-hmm. that, uh, we had a 93% graduation rate and a 97% college acceptance rate. Wow. Um, so, you know, because of these rates, college prep really built itself as a social justice school. It was kind of doing what in terms of college um, matriculation, it was it was doing what other public schools couldn't do. And it was unscreened. It was a traditional public. Okay. It wasn't a charter or anything like that. Um, now, at the time, the on time graduation rate in um, New York City was about 62 percent. So mm-hmm. that just gives you a, a, you know, sort of the the comparison. Um Now, the reason why college prep has numbers like that, graduation, college matriculation rates like that, is because um, in many ways, um, administrators at the school created an in-house nonprofit organization that could accept private sector funds. Uh, Um, Yeah. So in this book, I call that the foundation. mm -hmm. Uh, And basically what the foundation did when it was getting all this private money, it meant that teachers and students had access to resources and opportunities um, that went way beyond what... Other public schools had. Um, The the foundation's primary funder was a, um, funder and founder, the school's primary founder was a firm in Midtown Manhattan, a corporate firm, um, and I call that the firm in the book. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, these resources, I mean, these resources at college prep that were so different looked like, you know, there was the college office and college counseling available to all students. Um, Teachers were able, had the time to help read and edit students' uh, personal essays for college. There was a dance studio. There was like a gym and an auditorium on the top floor of the building. Um, There were standing and mobile computer labs for students. There were smart boards and projectors in every room. Um, Lots of extracurricular internship and and summer opportunities um, for students. Um, Yeah, and that was very different. I mean, the two city schools where I had taught before, really the only resource that teachers had freely available to them was chalk, right? Like I had taught in schools (laughs) that didn't have a working copy machine, where, you know, teachers had a limited number of uh, a limited amount of paper they could use. You know, College Prep, it was like any resources we want, wanted, we could have. Um, so the thing, the thing about these resources and opportunities, and this was the story I ended up telling the ethnography, is that these resources came with strings attached. Okay. Um, so, you know, our relationship with our funders, um, although College Prep saw itself as a social justice school, our relationship with our funders, work to serve to to serve and to further some of the racial and economic and social hierarchies that the school purported to eradicate through Mm -hmm. its graduation and college matriculation rates. So I realized that, you know, once I started talking to teachers and to parents and to administrators um, at college prep, I couldn't write about race and, you know, about sort of the way teachers were teaching in the classroom um, without talking about the school's close relationship with the foundation, because this affected so much of, everyday life at college prep, right? The mm-hmm. way we had to speak ourselves to our funders. Um, so that's what the book became about, right? How we, how we marketed race um, to our funders in a way that made them feel generous, while at the same time, you know, having to portray ourselves as needy, um, but, mm-hmm. but also deserving. So, you know, I saw, what I saw going on and what a lot of teachers and students talked to me about sort of behind the curtain is the way I put it in the book, um, is that you know the work we did to to market ourselves as worthy to funders um, indexed really, really deeply rooted white supremacist social narratives about poor and at risk black or brown urban youth, mm. um, white female savior teachers um, and generous funders and so I, you know that sort of those narratives obviously further social inequality but then you know also, the fact that our school is chosen because we can market ourselves well while you know the school down the street is not um, literally furthers resource inequality, because there's nothing about us that inherently makes us more deserving um, than any other school. so I'm, I'm really arguing not necessarily for an end to philanthropy and education, but for um, maybe more sustainable or, or more equitable ways of distributing resources in public schools.
0: All right. Wow. And, you know, the story that you wrote about there, it, you know, is it, not something that is, is unusual or will not be unusual to, to some people in education. You know, things you have to do for for money sometimes, right. you know.
1: Right, right. Uh, and know. that's education. I mean, the nonprofit sector, too. Like, I have people who are, who are out of education, but if you do anything that requires private funding, you know, people feel like the story is,
0: is familiar. Right. And so, you know, even though, it, you know, there were good things being done, um, you know, and, and the students were achieving. I guess you know from what from what you're explaining here and, and what I saw in the book there that you know there's a good. I guess a good and a bad to it, right? Yes, you know that's right. You know, right. And so it's kind of like a ba- a balance. Is it is it is it really worth it? Or you know, it, and even is it fair to those other schools? I guess fair is always is, is relative, but. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, and you know, is it fair to those you know those other schools? You know, the school where you worked, you know, was kind of being held up as being you know a, a great example, but you know I don't know. I mean, it's it's interesting. It's, it's an interesting debate to think about, Amy, particularly when you look at look at kind of where we are now. You know, we have a new secretary of of education who has a background with charter schools and, and school vouchers, yeah. and you know people talk a lot about the partnerships. You know, developing partnerships between schools and uh, corporations. Um, but, you know, as you said, those those partnerships don't come without costs or expectations.
1: Yes, exactly. And 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 you're absolutely right. You know, those partnerships are increasing. And I think there was a study at uh, Michigan State that mm-hmm. looked between 2000 and, two, 2000 and 2010, um, philanthropic giving in K-12 education rose more than 70%. So that's that's a lot. I mean, that's like a few billion dollars each year. So this is a really important question to explore. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, especially like you mentioned with, with Betsy DeVos as our, our new secretary of education, um, you know, in this case, I mean, I think I wouldn't say she has a lot of background in education per se, but it's her philanthropy. I mean, her philanthropy is what got her to this like right. policymaking making Position, so it's like her help with GOP campaign financing actually sort of helped her rise to power, um, and and literally helps her to have a voice in shaping policy. Um, And so, you know, she's somebody who really really seems to see privatization, um, so like bringing the power of the private sector to bear on public institutions um, in education as a as a panacea. You know, and I think that's really dangerous because it's taking us out. It's taking us away from what's so important about the public
0: nature of public education. So, your title, and we're here with uh, Amy Brown, the author of A Good Investment, Philanthropy and the Marketing of Race in an Urban Public School. And the book is published by University of Minnesota Press. Amy Brown is an educational anthropologist and a faculty member in, critical, in the critical writing program at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And, you know, what I was going to say is, you know, your book, the title is a question a good investment, you you know, Mm. (laughs) do you have an answer or is it it an open question?
1: (laughs) That's a a good question. Um, (laughs) I'm not sure that I have the answer. And I I think, you know, it makes me think about my my undergraduates and the business of doing good. We've had a lot of conversations about, so what are we supposed to do? You know, like if, look, this is where education is moving, you know, is it a choice between Either you know accepting this funding with with these all these strings attached and sort of furthering these narratives, or are we just not supposed to are we just supposed to end philanthropy i mean is that is that what you're saying you know i don't i don't think either of those actually is okay. um, a good answer right i mean i of course, I think that the problem is much more complicated than you know just saying yes or no to um to philanthropy you know I think one thing I talk to my students a lot about is like this idea of um Philanthropists, the people who philanthropists surround themselves with um, are oftentimes like their friends or people who are very affirming of what they're doing. Um, a lot of times it seems like um, philanthropists are not in a position to be very open to uh, public critique or, or debate. Although, you know, sometimes you, you will get critiques that come out, uh, you know, in the press or in the media or something like that um, about, you know, how the Gates foundation messed up or, you know, things like that. But, But really in real time, um, I think one solution might be if we can assume that philanthropists have good intentions, you Mm. know, and we, they do, um, what are the ways that we can kind of, um, go off script, right? And, um, what are the ways that we can think about different kinds of solidarity or different kinds of giving where maybe philanthropists are giving to some kind of public, uh, giving for the public good as opposed to choosing one school or one student, Right. um, so I think that's one way of thinking about it. I mean, we, you know, at college prep, teachers and students really weren't in a position to be able to critique uh, or to, to sort of sort of change the narrative. Um, everybody was afraid to do that because we didn't want any of our resources or opportunities to go away. Um, so it was this every time we interacted with uh, funders, it was this kind of everybody was sort of wearing their masks and performing the script they were supposed to. Mm. Um, but. You know, the current principal of the school, um, we had a conversation where she was like, what would happen if everybody were to just kind of like drop their masks, right? Like what if we weren't just furthering this one narrative about black and brown urban, you know, needy urban kids? Um, and what if we were, I don't know, people were engaging on a much more sort of human level. So that's one thing. I mean, I I also think though, that like when we talk about schools, the issue is not just with what happens in our schools. Mm -hmm. Um we have to think if we want if we want public education to get better, we need to think about reforming our tax structure. You know, maybe people just need to pay higher taxes. Um, we also need to think about things like affordable food, you know, universal health care for people, uh, university, early child, universal early childhood edu- education, um, ending environmental destruction, you know, like, so I think there are a lot of Ways that we could probably reform um, the way that philanthropy works, and and work with people's good intentions to actually ensure that giving is is sustainable.
0: And uh, you know, and, and thinking back to what you just said, unfortunately, many people who have a lot of money are used to you know, not all, but many are. They're used to making their own decisions and being in power. And like you said, people respecting their thoughts and, you know, and, 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 you know, their process, the way they do things. And they want to contribute to things that they can have some control over, you know? Right. And so I, you know, I, I think that's, that's really interesting that you, that you say that maybe they should give to like a public fund and that can be pulled from. But I think very often as you know, as we, you talked about hearing a good investment, they want to be controlling of whatever it is that they give their money towards,
1: you know, Yeah.
0: You know, and I and also, I, Oh, go ahead. Yeah.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that like a lot of the reason why philanthropy um is becoming so popular, especially in education, is because bureaucracies are slow and a lot of public education is seen as kind of a slow moving, non-innovative um, bureaucracy that doesn't ever progress. Right. It doesn't. And, mm-hmm. and so I understand the need like you can do quick innovations with um philanthropic dollars or um philanthropic ideas because, you know, they're not democratic and they're not they're not bureaucratic either. Um, but I just wonder if there's a way in which we could, uh, yeah, we could we could find a better balance.
0: And, and I think about like you know, as, as you you know pointed out in the book, and as you mentioned earlier, you know what what effect does that have on those students? What are they learning that they need to perform and put on the mask and do things a certain way to be able to achieve their goals as a, as opposed to being their authentic selves? Yeah, and, exactly. You know, and that that could have a long lasting impact. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah as does, you know, kind of perpetuating that stereotype of the, you know, the the great white savior and the, you know, the needy, you know, person, um, you know, making them feel good. Is it, you know, is it it really about helping the students or is it about themselves, you know, feeling good about something that they felt like they did, you know?
1: Right, right, exactly. And that's that's something I touch on in a few chapters of my book. Mm -hmm. There are a few ways in which we think we see this idea of like, um, how you know? In what ways is college prep um, teaching students in ways that are psychologically safe and culturally affirming? And in sure. what ways uh, is college prep sort of, you know, through the narrative that they're that they're selling to funders and and through perpetuating this kind of white savior narrative? Um, in what way are they sort of um, ascribing a deficit to uh, students' communities, students' families, and and to students themselves? Mm. Um, and and how harmful is that? Right to learn um, in an environment like that. So you know, when I talk about, um, the chapter where I write about professionalism, for example, mm-hmm. um, think a lot about that. So that chapter was, was really about, um, what I call it's sort of the, the curriculum of professionalism at college mm-hmm. prep. Um, and so teachers at college prep would, would grade students on their professionalism. Um, they would carry clipboards around the room and they would take off points for students who, you know, wow. students deemed were not behaving professionally. Okay. Um, so a point-based metric for evaluating students' behavior, but um, the assistant principal of the school described, a, she, she was a black woman, described professionalism as nebulous and, and hard to define, as you can imagine. Um, mm-hmm. It's pretty subjective. So, yeah. you know, professionalism points could be taken off for anything, really. So if you were, you know, out of uniform, if you came to class late, if you fell asleep, if you cut class... Uh, you know, but sometimes it was for, you know, students, if they weren't looking directly at a teacher, sometimes if a teacher thought a student was talking too loud, they would take off professionalism points. Wow. Um, yeah. And, and then, it, you know, it was really, um, interesting to me. A lot of students seem to equate being professional with being quiet, um, or with wearing the, the school uniform, which was like khaki pants and an Oxford, a, a college shirt. Um, so for me, that was, that was a bit frightening, um one student who I was a cheerleading coach while I was at the school as well and in, in addition for just a little while um in addition to teaching English and mm. one student who was um she had grades that were basically not good enough to cheer on the squad and so she came to a meeting with uh her mom and the, the dean of discipline at the school and me and um we asked the student, you know, what are you gonna do to um get your grades back up so you can cheer again and she said, Oh I'm just gonna come in. I'm going to be quiet. I'm going to be professional, just not say anything, you know? And so mm. that I, is, is really troubling. Um, when you think about what it means to be a professional, I mean, me, right, my job requires me to have authority, right, to be mm. autonomous, to have a specialized knowledge base. And then you think about college prep professionalism. I think it's, it's discouraging those three things. Mm. Um, so what kind of workers is college prep actually teaching its students to, to be? You have to ask yourself that question. And, and I think some teachers uh, use professionalism as a way to sort of further a deficit discourse about students' families or communities. So there was a teacher who said, oh, a lot of these students, you know, they grow up in the projects. They, they don't have anyone who's professional around them. Um, so there's this assumption that low-income black and brown students um, lack the social skills that are required for upward mobility and, and mm. personhood. Um. And, and that, you know, I found, I found troubling as well. So s- students were very mixed about professionalism mm. uh, when I, I surveyed them about it and about half of them liked professionalism. They felt like it was really going to prepare them for the real world. And, um, you know, it, it, helped to boost their grades. It was usually 10% of their, their, the grades okay. on their trans. Um, and others felt like, you know, professionalism, uh, isn't necessary. Like, Oh, I'm already professional. Like, professionalism hurts my grades a lot. Like I don't, you know, teachers go too far with this. Um, So yeah, I think, I mean, the the curriculum of professionalism is one way that I think uh, college prep was actually, again, with good intentions, Mm -hmm. um, sort of doing some, some harm um, Mm -hmm. to to its students. Now, I mean, at the end of that chapter, I I do, obviously character education is important. Um, I, I do, it is important to know how to be professional, um, in a certain way, right? So, so, I wonder if there's a way that we could maybe recuperate professionalism, like okay. a way to teach that without undermining the identities of, of students. Um, can you teach students to sort of definitely navigate between different kinds of cultural spaces um, while still really affirming who they are? Um, so, yeah, I think, I mean, can we teach professionalism without sort of being an attack on who kids are? Uh, is, is the question uh. that I looked at. No.
0: That's a great point. And, you know, myself as an educator, I, you know, I've taught in independent schools as, as well as public schools, and, you know, in my my K-12 days. And, you know, I, I find it interesting that a lot of things you know, when you're in the public schools or in the charters that they say that, you know, we're going to give these students the best and we're going to, you know, educate them a certain way. But they're asked to do things that you don't see in the independent schools.
1: Right. You right, know, right. so
0: we're saying that we're trying to give them you know a better education and you know and 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 maybe equate what they're doing educationally to what happens in independent schools but independent school kids unless it's a catholic school or something like that they don't have uniforms they can dress how they want and they're encouraged to challenge the teachers and yeah. you know and, and you know just kind of speak and, and kind of do things their own way where if you look yep. at particularly some of the charter schools that you know they're all wear uniforms you know there's a lot of rote learning and hand clapping and you know all these kind of things so you know, it really makes me think. A lot of what you said, Amy. You know, we, we we're training them to be more of a servant class. Um, yeah. You know, and, and you know, and, and be docile while you know these other group of students are you know being trained to be leaders and and to kind of kind of be in, in control. Um, yeah, that's right.
1: That's you know,
0: right. You know, a lot of people don't understand that unless they see both in action.
1: Yeah. That, yeah. No, it's it's true. But but I think what was also pretty instrumental for me, thinking about the kind of. You know, social reproduction that you're talking about. And there's a whole body, you know, social reproduction theory that talks about why is it that, you know, poor people stay poor and rich people stay rich, right? right like, why, right. you know, why isn't there more, why don't we see more upward mobility? Um, and, you know, I think once you look at the, um, not just the college matriculation rate for college prep kids, but once you look at the college retention rate, um, it becomes very apparent that, you know, a lot of what college prep was doing to sort of perform um, high graduation and high college matriculation rate and to sort of, you know, push kids along um, using a lot. Teachers complained a lot about grade inflation, right? Did not actually prepare kids to to stay in college. So what I saw was, and I looked at official NYC DOE um, statistics, as well as I did sort of my own informal work looking at, I, I was friends with about, I think 80 of the kids that were my, uh, that were 10th graders um, in 2008 when I started school. So following them through post graduation, so like two years later, we have, um, when I followed up, le- about half or maybe less than half of them were still in college. Um, wow. And so when you can track, right, so you, you think about like, you know, the high school that I went to, for example, maybe, or, you know, a, a kind of, maybe a predominantly white school or, or an independent school or a school that's teaching kids to be more, uh, maybe we want to use the word autonomous or something. I'm not sure, but rethinking maybe, you know, um, or even, well, yeah, I mean, you just think about what, imagine what those college retention rates might look like. Hmm. And I'm not sure. I don't have the data to back that up, but I would imagine that they would probably be higher. Um, so it's clear that there's something that's not working, um, in, of, you know, in terms of what's happening at college prep. So they're helping the students on
0: the front end get into the colleges, but they're not developing necessarily the skills to stay there, right? It's one thing to yeah. get into college. What, what do we used to tell our students? Uh, the hardest thing about college is not getting in, is getting out.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> we exactly. say that a lot. Yeah. Uh, yeah, And so, you know, you developing those skills so you can stick with it and stay stay the course when times are tough or you're faced with um, situations that are different than you're used to, you know, being able to adapt. And that is something that not just, you know, in a school like the one where you work, but many schools across the country, you know, a lot of parents and some teachers and educators have complained about that. You know, we're not teaching the kids to critically think enough or adapt. Um, You know, it's about testing and, you know, and, you know, kind of cookie cutter approach. And it Mm -hmm. sounds like you've had some experience with that. Um, when you were conducting this research and that's unfortunate i I hate to hear that such a high level of those students did not finish what was what were some of them doing were they just in the work world were they potentially going to go back to school or or what did you find
1: maybe i mean there was one student um who i spoke with who and and she was one of the students who was a participant in um she was one of the studies that i i did in chapter five so so in chapter five case studies of, of Uh, three female students at the school, black female students. And then in chapter six, I did um, what's called a cultural circle with those students. Mm -hmm. Um, We did like a, over the summer, like a, it was kind of like a reading group or like a book club. So I I got to know these students really well. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, when I spoke with her, she was still in school. So she was at uh, at Brooklyn College. Um, But she said that most of her friends, um, you know, she didn't know a lot of them who were still in college and the ones who were not in college anymore, um, we doing all kinds of things. I mean, different kinds of, um, you know, positions that were paid hourly. Many of them did not have health benefits. Um, and so we mm-hmm. talked about that just said that the students who, um, you know, ended up working for the city were the ones that ended up doing better because they actually had had benefits sure, that came sure, up. Sure. Jobs, but, um, there was one student who I was a participant in the cultural circles and she ended up, I think she was like working at a yogurt shop and then ended up um, having a baby. Um, And I'm not sure what she, what she's doing now. Um, You know, I mean, you know, some, some still are in college, some have graduated, some have gone on to, to pursue, you know, master's degrees at this point. So um, it's kind of, it's all over the map, but but this speaks about, you know, based on this student's perspective that many were not in college. Mm -hmm. Um, That's, you know, that's that's a bit a bit disturbing.
0: Yeah, it it, it, it is because it just, just, you know, kind of enforces what you you have been talking about in the book and and with us here today that there was, you know, a lot of it was I don't want to say dog and pony show. That's probably too strong. But, you know, it was a lot of, you know, show going through the process and, you know, you know, maybe getting their grades to get to college. Um, Right. But, you know, not a lot was done. You know, to help them afterwards, or to ensure that they had success, and you know that's that's unfortunate. But your that school was not is not the only one, unfortunately.
1: Right, right, exactly. And I and I don't think you're wrong with with dog and pony show. There was actually one uh, an, an English teacher, um, the only black male English teacher in the in the department who who used those exact words. You know, it is a dog and pony show, and he actually likens um, some of the ways that we performed at you know at benefits. Um, up at the firm, or there was a movie that came out about college prep, which was really reinforcing this narrative it was like, you know, this college or this this school will save its students, um, you know, without a lot of attribution to students' parents or to their communities or whatever. Um, so he said it reminded him of of chapter one of Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, mm. the, the battle where you just have, um, you know, there's like a, a boxing match between um, black men and, and a White audience kind of looking on, you know, for their own entertainment and enjoyment, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, he he also likened it to Paul Lawrence Dunbar's poem, uh, We Wear the Mask, you know. And so just oh. thinking about what we sacrifice when we when we put those masks on, um, I think is it, it's powerful. I mean, for him, you know, he ended up leaving the school, um, as did many, many black teachers at the school, oh. either were sort of pushed out or ended up leaving because they just, just couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, some of them I think were, were disillusioned. I mean, he in particular became really frustrated with, um, the level of sort of white savior ideology that he was experiencing at the school I mean, with his colleagues. He just, he got frustrated with that. And he, I mean, he ended up going to pursue a doctorate and he, you know, he's working on, um, black male teacher retention. Okay. Um, but other teachers were pushed out. I mean, this was also pretty interesting was that, um, Oftentimes, in, like in the movie about college prep that was shown uh, to funders or, uh, you know, at these benefits where we would have to go sort of um, hobnob with people who would at the end of the night, you know, drop drop checks into a box for us. Um, there was usually one token black teacher that was selected to, to go. Um, and, you know a lot of the pictures you know about the school would feature kind of like one black teacher in a classroom with black kids i mean it's 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 feeding into this sort of politically liberal dream of um you know black teachers in classrooms maybe diversity i'm not sure what but then um when it came time for to be promoted um or if a black teacher were to sort of um stand up in any way to the school's power structure which was you know was white administrators pretty much at the top um, they were often either passed over for promotions or told, um, and it was always the same words. You're not the right fit and, and mm. have to, have to go somewhere else. And so I heard that story so many times, um, you know, from, um, from black faculty at the school. So that was another story that I, that I chose to tell. I mean, one person actually, uh, he texted me, you know, I think I, I already had a, a book contract at that point, but I was working on the manuscript mm-hmm. and, and, he had just been fired from the school and he said, I need you to I need to you to interview me again. Like I, I need my <laughs> what happens to be in your book. So I ended up going back and interviewing him and, and so his story is actually in the in the afterword of the book. Wow. Um, yeah, so this is I mean, I think that like what was important to me about writing this book, um, I you know, we all talk about or maybe not we all but but a lot of us in education sure. talk about um privatization and marketization and we see these things kind of at the at the macro level but mm. what is the lived experience of privatization right. and marketization of public schooling feel like um, what does that do to us as as educators and as students um, on a day-to-day level and so that's really what I wanted to to profile here
0: and i think you did a very good job with that amy with this book and the book is a, a good investment philanthropy and the marketing of race in an urban public school and it's published by university of minnesota press and we're here today on the african-american studies channel the new books network with amy brown talking about her her book and definitely this is a book is readable for general audiences you know, it's a it's a, a book that scholars find interesting as well you know but it's it's her work and her experiences and I, you definitely did a great job kind of portraying that student perspective you know the, the perspective of of the teachers and you know just all different aspects and you know it was it was almost like a <laughs> like a movie for me you know it was like i felt like i was, i was i was living it. it reminded me of a lot of experiences that i had i had in the classroom and um you know i definitely would recommend this to to, to folks who are interested in some of the the debates and issues that are going on in, in education now and you know it, it might surprise you um and unfortunately in some cases it's not going to surprise you it's going to be some things that <laughs> that you would probably have personal experiences, experience or that you would expect to be happening um, in schools, particularly schools that are receiving some outside funding. Um, one of the things I want to ask you, Amy, um, is what kind of feedback have you gotten? I know you mentioned you talked to the current um, principal uh, relatively yeah. recently. Um, what kind of feedback have you gotten from maybe parents or you know, some other administrators or people that you haven't mentioned yet about the book or the community?
1: Right. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So I, you know, this again was an idea that I got from um, my mentor, Doug Foley. Uh, he went, after he wrote his ethnography, Learning Capitalist Culture, he turned it into a longitudinal study. And so he went back and re-interviewed his participants, I think 10 years later, and then again, 10 years later, just to, to he's working on that social reproduction stuff that you talked about. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, why is it that working class kids Get working class jobs, right? And similar to Jay McLeod's stuff, actually, too.
0: Oh yeah, I, I was thinking when you said it, that, that's exactly yeah. what I was thinking about.
1: <laughs> that's another great, great, <laughs> topic. yeah. So, um, ain't no making so, it for I, those who aren't for me. What's that?
0: No, I was, I was just saying the name. Ain't no making it is the. Is ain't the
1: no making it,
0: that's right? Yeah, that's for right. Those who aren't yeah. familiar? Go ahead.
1: Yes, yeah. yeah, classic. So, so anyway, I wanted to um, sort of as an insider teacher, right? Uh, as I, I see myself as an activist academic. I see myself as um, somebody who really wants to not sort of uh, give give my own just my own view of what's happening in you know a community. When I write ethnography, mm-hmm. I, I see as I see writing ethnography as a really collaborative process, right. and so I wanted to involve teachers and students and parents um, as much as I possibly could in. in in the writing of the book, but then once I had a manuscript, um, I wanted to go back and get their feedback on it before it was published. And so, um, I followed up with everybody. Um, and I think I I interviewed at at first a lot more people than I actually ended up following up with. Um, so I interviewed, I think it was about 40. I have to look. Um, I interviewed, I think, well, around 40, uh, teachers and students and, and parents. Um, I did, you know, hundreds of hours of participant observation while I was doing this work. I did like a school wide student questionnaire. Um, so, you know, I, I went back and everyone who I interviewed at first, I, I sent them an email and I said, look, I'm, you know, if you're willing to read the manuscript, I'd love to talk to you about your, your opinion. Um, and I'm totally willing to make changes or revisions to the manuscript based on your perspective, right? I want this to be, as, again, as collaborative as possible. Um, So 11 teachers, uh, you know, wrote me back and said that they were interested in in talking to me again after reading the manuscript, so I spoke with them. um, Four students um, I I spoke with as well, Um, and then I also did a um, sort of a professional development with uh, staff and students and parents, um, at the school in 2010. So everybody was, was there for that. And I, I did sort of a PowerPoint with my findings and asked folks for their feedback there. Um, what I found was that, um, people sort of define themselves like within and against what I call the political spectacle. So the problem, the, the, the school's definition of the problem and also the school's definition of the solution to to problems Mm -hmm. in education being philanthropy, people were really, um, Ambivalent about um, and and when I say people here, I mean students and teachers mm-hmm. were very ambivalent about their perspec- uh, their participation in the, the the school spectacle for its funders, um, and so they kind of told me that they knew they had to perform, like they knew they were playing the game, but and they knew why that was problematic in a lot of ways. They didn't like it, but they needed to keep doing it because they wanted to get resources. So. When they read the manuscripts, especially um, many of the the black teachers who I talked to were like, thank you so much for telling this story. Like, you know, I think this is right on. I mean, especially to some of the critical white teachers were like, this story absolutely needed to be told about college prep. Like, Mm -hmm. this is it. I did, the principal of the school, when I talked to her, and she's not, she's not the principal who I write about in the book. So she's, she was actually one of my colleagues, like as an English teacher, when, when we taught between 2008 and 2010 she got promoted to, to, to principal she um you know she's invited me back to the school she said um you know she really valued my perspective she said that they don't actually use professionalism points at the school anymore um so i don't know if that's because of what i wrote or you know because of you know things that she decided to change herself um But but it seemed like she was – she definitely took a lot of my critiques into into account. So that was really – it's great to be an ethnographer and feel that kind of trust, like you've maintained trust with your participants over time. Um, And one of the ways of marking that is if they say, yeah, you're welcome back anytime. Like, we'd love to have you. (laughs) That's a
0: good good sign.
1: (laughs) I was really happy about that. Um, Now, there were some more negative – um interactions that I had as a result of the book, mm. um, and those for me were really that was tough. I mean, that was painful because not only because I worked really hard on the book, obviously, but then um also because I, I don't I didn't intend the book to be a criticism of any particular individual, right? It's about right. the way that we all you know through what we do every day and sometimes through our very good intentions, um rearticulate social, racial, gender, class inequalities. Mm um all the time like you know racism is not something i mean it can be an individual phenomenon right but i'm um, i'm i see it as as structural right and so what are the ways that we we continue to um to uphold and further white supremacy through you know through our everyday um sometimes uncritical actions so um two of the teachers um yeah, two of the teachers who, who I, who I wrote about in the ethnography, uh, both white women who I was more critical of, one of them read the manuscripts and, um, refused to be interviewed, like basically just doesn't want to have anything to do with me ever again. Um, wow. and then one, we had a, we had a pretty tough, uh, follow-up interview. She was, uh, she was crying and, um, she was just really upset about the way that I had sort of portrayed her as Um, you know, like a a white savior teacher in the, in the ethnography. Um, so it was, I mean, it was instructive for me because, um, even though I didn't intend to, I didn't intend it to be a witch hunt. Right. Um, she took it that way. And so, um, I think it was in the end, a really, um, productive conversation for both of us because, uh, I learned a lot through her perspective about like how to talk to other white people about race. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like, you know, white people need to do that for each other, right? It's not just up to non-white people to school white people on when we're not being yes. critical, you know, when we're being racist or whatever. Um, so you don't want to shut people down and, and close them off like the one person who never wants to speak to me again. Um, but at the same time, you have to call it out when you see it, you know? Um so yeah, I took her. I mean, I took her seriously, and and it ended up she was uh, one of the case studies in the in the white teachers chapter, the, mm-hmm. the waiting for Superman chapter. Um, so originally there were four. I took her case study out, and I sort of integrated most of the data from that case study is still in the book, but I just integrated it throughout other chapters, okay. and then along with places where I'm critical of her. Um, as being sort of a, you know, as embodying the white savior ideology. I also include her comments from our follow-up interview where she's sort okay. of saying why, just giving more insight into why she, you know, yeah. why she said what she said or why she did what she did. So I tried to be a little bit fairer to her while not, you know, also not taking out any of the um, the critiques that I was trying to make of, of that ideology.
0: Yeah. I, th- I mean, I I think that's a that's a great approach. And certainly it'll inform you in your future research as well, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. and I'm, and I'm really glad to hear that you weren't you know turned off to doing to doing some of those kind of things because unfortunately, sometimes people internalize the people that you're you're interviewing that you're studying they internalize it as you against them when it's like you said it's not that at all. you're just presenting right. the information you know as it is, and you know because you know sometimes people don't want to admit things about themselves, whether they're true or not.
1: Right, right, you right, know.
0: exactly. And so, exactly. I was glad at least with one of those people that you were able to make that connection with. The other one, unfortunately, probably is just a lost cause. But
1: yeah, she might be. I mean, you know, we'll see. Maybe we'll cross paths again, and yeah. you know, have yeah. another conversation. But but yeah.
0: Do you do you have any thoughts about um maybe following your you know your 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 um the other professor's advice about maybe making this more longitudinal and coming back like a, a Jay McLeod uh, type book coming back and seeing how these kids are in 10 years, 20 years.
1: Oh yeah. I would love to do that. Um, and I am, I mean, that's one good thing about social media, right? If you can stay connected to people oh, yeah. and it's just, really easy to, you know, kind of just get in touch. So, so I think that would be something that, you know, I would be very interested in doing. I do plan on staying in touch. And I mean, I am still in touch via Instagram via Facebook with a lot of my former students there and with, with many of the former teachers. That's good. Um, so yeah, I would. I, I'm definitely thinking about about doing a follow up.
0: Yeah, that's good. I would love to see this made into uh, one of those PBS or HBO documentaries too. You know. Ooh,
1: yeah. And, yeah.
0: You know, I'm sure you wouldn't mind that either, right? If they approached yeah, you.
1: I, <laughs> I wouldn't mind it at all. I mean, and I think actually there are some uh, some folks that who I work with at, at UPenn who are uh, sort of mentors to me there, John Jackson and, and Deb Thomas and oh, yeah. and. Uh, they're anthropologists, but they do uh, incredible work with with making film too, as well. And and I think that's just a way of really broadening the audience for ethnographic work. Um, right. And that's that's something else I would just love to get into at some point.
0: Oh, I think I think this would be perfect for something like that. Um, so, but we could talk about that a little bit offline. You know, some ideals, You know, maybe I I have with that. Um, but yeah, this is, I'm here with Amy Brown, the author of A Good Investment Philanthropy and the Marketing of Race in an Urban Public School. She is an educational anthropologist, right? So, she's so, a little different than the anthropologist you think about going to Papua New Guinea or (laughs) some of those kinds of places. She's doing some
1: educational anthropologists do do that, right? I think, um, you know, I just happen—I happen to be an Americanist, so most <laughs> of my work is focused here. I don't get to go to all these exotic places, but um, but yeah, educational anthropologists work all over the world. Any place that teaching and learning happens, that's right. you know, we're there.
0: I think this is a yes, an, an awesome feel, and you know, I, I really enjoy talking with you. I don't want to keep you all day because you are at an Ivy League school, and they have plenty of things for you to do academically and uh, and otherwise. Uh, but we're here with the. Uh, An educational anthropologist and faculty member in the critical writing program at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, Amy Brown, and her book, A Good Investment, Philanthropy and the Marketing of Race in an Urban Public School. And, you know, like I said, I'm going to let you go here shortly, Amy, but I did want to give you a chance to share with the audience, if you don't mind, you know, what are some future projects you have or or current work that you're doing or anything you want to share with us?
1: Sure, yeah. So, um... Now I'm in Philly. Obviously, I I was in New York City before, so I'm working on uh, sort of transitioning my research from um, being based in in New York uh, to being based here in Philly. And um, I'm now working on a project uh, with Mark Stern, who's a colleague of mine up at Colgate University. Mm -hmm. And um, we are working with uh, a group of activist teachers, activist public school teachers here in Philly called the Caucus of Working Educators. And... um, We've done a couple of things with the caucus. I mean, it's it's definitely activist research. We're um, so I, I guess I should give a little bit of background. Uh, Philly is a city whose public schools are severely underfunded, okay. um, and we're seeing a lot of charterization of, of the schools. And we also have um, what's called the the School Reform Commission, and they're, um the SRC is a sort of. Non-democratically, non-elected, uh, school board that has a lot of say over, you know, when schools get closed, which schools are, are charterized. Um, and so there's a lot of pushback from the community about that. So, um, many of these teachers are really trying to, um, reclaim public education, um, make our public schools, uh, figure out some kind of fair funding formula, um, make our public schools more equitable, um, and so they're they're basically working within the Philadelphia Federation of Teachers, the the teachers union here, um, to to do this this kind of work. Uh, a lot of it's racial justice work. Um, and so with Mark, uh, the first article that we did, which is in the uh, the Urban Review, okay. is um, and that came out in uh, I think 2016.
0: So the Urban um, Urban Review 2016. Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and that one. Um, is basically exploring this idea of teacher activism as an antidote for uh, professional depression. So a lot of these teachers see their activism, um, as a way to, to, as as the only antidote for, for their kind of despair and paralysis that, um, you know, hard it is to to do the work that they do every day. Um, I've been there. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. I get it. Right. So, so, um, I, you know, that was our first piece, and and now we're working on another one um, with the same group of teachers. That's uh, that's actually about gender. Um, and what I found really interesting when I when I went back and I listened to these interviews um, with with these teachers is that many of them um, have a really sophisticated language to talk about race and white supremacy. They're very really really critical. But then when it comes to talking about gender, um, a lot of them say, "Oh, you know, I don't really consider myself a feminist, or you know, I'm not." You know, I haven't read all the gender theory. I know I should, but I just don't know it. Um, and so, I'm really curious about um, why that is. I see a lot of feminist praxis um, in in the way that teachers are doing their activism, and the way that they're okay. raising each other's consciousness. Um, but they're just not calling it that. Um, so, so yeah, I'm just sort of interrogating why that is. And and I know, I mean, I, that's another study that I need to go back and, and re-interview. Um, folks for because um, most of these interviews I, I did pre-election and I think that post-election we're starting to see, um, I think, a bit more consciousness around gender and also mm-hmm. gender oppression overlaps with um, white supremacy and um, with environmental injustice and all these all these other kinds of things. So I wonder if some of them would have a different perspective now, um, but that, that remains to be seen. So hopefully we'll expect an article and maybe a book at some point in the future. All oh,
0: right. And maybe a book, right, because if it's a book, you know I want to talk to
1: you. <laughs> I would love that. I would love that. <laughs> that,
0: that. That sounds great. I mean, that sounds like some really interesting research. And Oh, and uh, one thing I wanted to mention before we get, before we, I, I forget, Amy, is that, you know, if, if any educators want to reach out to you, you know, in terms of your research, right, is it okay for them to do that?
1: Yes, definitely. So uh, you're welcome to email me. I can, can I give them my, my email address? Is that a good idea? Uh, sure, okay. sure. great so my email address is um brown ae at sas.upenn.edu um you can also follow me on twitter um so i'm amy underscore eliz underscore brown and
0: they could get in contact with you i guess in general if they want to talk about teaching and education but are there some specific areas maybe that you are looking to hear from people about
1: uh sure i mean i Yes, definitely anything related to uh racial justice, gender justice, education mm-hmm. absolutely. But but also um if there are, you know, maybe any teachers uh in the Philly area or, or even outside Philly that, that want to talk to me about gender um and, and about yeah. sort of their gender politics, um, that would yeah. be great too.
0: Yeah, that's what I was specifically thinking about based on what you said. Yeah, maybe they can get in contact with you about the the, the gender.
1: Yeah, um, yeah specifically. Yeah, it would be it would yeah. be interesting to to have some conversations and maybe expand the scope and study a bit.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And with that, Amy, I think we're gonna we're gonna wrap up because I. I, you know, I I love talking with our, our writers, our academics and scholars, but I know you guys have so much more to do than to talk with us on Skype. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, this was such a pleasure, James. Thank you so much.
0: Yes, absolutely. You know, I could talk with you all day. Amy, it's like we're like I mentioned to you earlier, we're just sitting around the dorm and we're talking about <laughs> all the issues and problems in the world and how we can solve them, right? That's
1: right. right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so on, on that note, we're going to let Dr. Amy Brown go of the University of Pennsylvania, UPenn. And just one more time, I want to mention her book title, because if you're a parent or you're even a a student now or, or you're thinking about becoming a teacher or you're an educator or administrator, this is a great book for you to look at and, you know, maybe understand some issues that you maybe weren't aware of or some experiences that she experienced at the school where she worked that could be similar to yours. And the book is called A Good Investment, Philanthropy and the Marketing of Race in an urban public school and it's published by the University of Minnesota Press. And when we get offline, Amy, I definitely want to talk with you. I got to get you down to Houston and, and maybe talk to some of our folks down here about your book, uh, and some of your experiences. Yes, All right. That would be great. And so on that note, I'll say goodbye. This is James Stansel, your host of the African-American studies channel on the new books network. Amy, can you tell our audience goodbye?
1: Thank you so much for listening.
0: All right. Take care. And we'll see everyone next time. Peace and love. This is the African-American studies channel of the New Books Network. And I'm your host, James Stansel. Take care. All right. We're back here. I really enjoyed that interview with Amy Brown. She's an Ivy League professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And her book is A Good Investment, Philanthropy and the Marketing of Race in an Urban Public School. And those of you who are teachers out there, definitely email her, particularly if you're a female teacher. She's looking at doing some research with gender. She mentioned that you can look up her email address at uh, she's on LinkedIn. She's on uh, Twitter. And you can also look her look, look up her uh, her page at the University of Pennsylvania. And again, you know, this was a, a great interview. She's an outstanding scholar. And, you know, People think about ethnic, or pardon me, educational anthropology as being something ethnic and something overseas and far away, but you can do anthropology right here in the United States. And if you're interested in ethnography and the type of research she did where you become a part of a community and report on it as a member of the community, this is a great book to take a look at. And again, the book is A Good Investment, Philanthropy and the Marketing of Race in an Urban Public School. Talking about the challenges of being a teacher and the challenges of funding and what you give up when you get funding from outside sources. So I hope you enjoyed the interview and go out and get her book, A Good Investment. It's published by University of Minnesota Press, the author, Amy Brown. And that's going to be enough for us for this week. We'll leave you to think about that and we'll see you next time on the African-American Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, James Stansel. Peace and love.